This is the voice of contract management presented by the law firm of Kroll & Mooring exclusively for NCMA. Stay up to date on all things contract management five minutes at a time. Our team at Kroll & Mooring presents these podcasts to keep you up to speed on a bi-monthly basis. We will cover everything from regulatory updates to crucial changes that affect government contracting. In this special edition, we'll be focused on the Infrastructure Bill and Inflation Reduction Act and key areas for companies to watch in 2023. I'm joined by several of my colleagues who are tracking these developments closely. Tyler O'Connor, David Blair, Addie Cliff, Eric Sue, and Ellie Dawson. Thank you all so much for joining. Why don't we go ahead and get started and we're gonna focus uh, on a couple questions for Tyler first. So Tyler, as a recent congressional lawyer responsible for actually drafting parts of the IRA and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, what programs are you watching and tracking most closely in 2023? Thanks, Peter. As you mentioned, I recently served as the Energy Council to the House Energy and Commerce Committee. So naturally, I'm most closely tracking the programs that I think will have an outsized effect on the energy transition. That includes the IRS's forthcoming guidance on the hydrogen and CCUS tax credits, as well as its guidance on the transferability of the IRA's clean energy tax credits. I'm also watching the pace of announcements from the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office, which administers the Section 1703 Loan Guarantee Program, which supports the deployment of innovative technologies, as well as the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, which finances auto manufacturing projects. From conversations with agency officials, I expect LPO will issue multiple high-profile 1703 and ATVM funding announcements over the next few months. Most exciting, however, is probably the Loan Program office, Programs Office's implementation of the newly created Section 1706 Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program, which is authorized to guarantee up to $250 billion in loan volume for projects that retool, repower, repurpose, or replace energy infrastructure that has ceased operations, or that enable operating energy infrastructure to avoid, reduce, utilize, or sequester air pollutants or greenhouse gas emissions. I can tell you the program authors in Congress have high hopes that this program can support the retirement and replacement of legacy power assets with new clean technologies like advanced nuclear and solar farms. So I really look forward to seeing the loan program office's forthcoming guidance and its plan for implementing what I think is a potentially transformative program. The IRA and infrastructure bill also included numerous transmission programs, which as many folks know are near and dear to my heart. Uh, the Department of Energy's Grid Deployment Office is currently soliciting requests for proposals for its transmission facilitation program, which authorizes DOE to act as an anchor tenant on large capacity transmission lines. And it recently issued a request for information regarding its implementation of the IRA's Transmission Siting and Economic Development Grant Program. Both programs seek to tackle impediments that often impede the deployment of high-capacity interregional transmission. And then, of course, EPA is also likely to issue consequential announcements about the operation of the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund and the Clean Ports Program in the coming months, and we'll be tracking those very closely. So what do you see, Tyler, as the biggest implementation risks for the IRA and the infrastructure bill from your standpoint? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, as I think there are several underappreciated risks. The first is timing. Uh, most of the programs authorized in the Inflation Reduction Act, other than the tax credits, 
expire on September 30th, 2031, which means the government isn't authorized to make outlays after that date. It also means that agencies are actually required to make funds available to recipients very soon. In fact, some programs must make funding available no later than September 30th, 2026. So those abbreviated timelines and you know, the possibility that a subsequent administration might not prioritize implementation of the IRA means that the current administration has to move very quickly to get dollars out the door. Congressional investigations and interference also pose a significant threat to implementation. Solyndra provides probably the best, most famous example of how politics and congressional investigations can threaten and delay agency action. After the Loan Programs Office was castigated for guaranteeing loans to Solyndra, a solar company that ultimately went bankrupt, the Department of Energy became very risk-averse and avoided financing many new projects for years. Republicans in Congress are already calling the IRA, you know, quote, Solyndra on steroids. So it's critical that program recipients are aware of and plan for the ability to respond to congressional oversight inquiries. Finally, I'm concerned that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission does not have a full complement of commissioners. Uh, greater regional and interregional transmission deployment is critical to realizing the benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act. FERC currently has several pending proposed rulemakings that would reform the transmission planning and interconnection process, but the fate of those rulemakings is uncertain with the recent departure of Chairman Rich Glick. Tyler, what do you think about litigation risk? Is that something that that you think is a realistic possibility that uh, companies should be watching? Yeah, absolutely. While the IRA and infrastructure bill both incentivize the deployment of large energy and industrial projects, permitting and the threat of permitting-related lawsuits can significantly interfere with project development timelines. That's why we regularly work with project developers, both to ensure fulsome compliance with environmental and other regulations, and to identify and mitigate associated litigation risk. Frankly, project developers need to be ready to defend their projects in the courts when necessary. Moreover, as more projects get built due to the IRA and the infrastructure bill, we're also likely to see a proliferation of typical project disputes, including construction disputes, financing disputes, and project agreement litigation. We've all seen how COVID and supply chain constraints have spawned waves of litigation. So project developers should contract with an understanding that unforeseen events may pose development and litigation risks. Finally, project developers should consider preparing for an eventual wave of enforcement actions by the Department of Justice's tax division. We saw an increase in tax litigation against renewable energy developers after passage of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act in 2009, and I expect a commensurate increase in tax litigation as a result of the IRA. Great. Tyler, thank you so much. That's really helpful. We're going to pivot to David Blair, who leads our tax team. David, so many of the IRA's green energy provisions are in the form of tax credits. Tax is just huge here. Can you walk us through how these credits differ from more traditional tax credits like the R&D credit? Thanks, Peter. Yeah, the IRA's credits are similar to a more traditional credits like the R&D credit in the sense that Congress is using the tax system to implement economic and industrial policy. However, the IRA credits tend to focus on specific technologies that can help the United States to transition to a more carbon or less carbon intensive economy. For example, the IRA includes credits for carbon capture utilization and storage, including capture of CO2 from industrial sources and from the ambient air. 
Other examples include the credits for production of electricity from renewables and clean hydrogen. But the IRA is not just about transitioning to greener energy. It is also about creating good paying jobs for American workers. This policy has affected the structure of the IRA credits in important ways. In addition, the IRA included provisions that make certain credits refundable for some types of taxpayers, so-called direct pay, and have made some credits freely transferable to a third-party taxpayer. Free transferability of tax credits is a pretty re revolutionary concept in the tax world. All of these new provisions will be implemented by the IRS and Treasury, with hundreds of billions of dollars at stake for taxpayers who invest in the projects. This is consistent with the recent trend of Congress implementing industrial policy through the tax code and relying on the nation's tax collector, the IRS, to implement that policy. We are working to help the IRS and Treasury issue guidance on the wide variety of technical topics that have come up under the IRA's green energy provisions. Down the road, the IRA tax credits are sure to put strain on the IRS's enforcement resources. David, you, you talked about the fact that the IRA includes a policy of creating and focusing on good paying American jobs. What aspects of the new tax laws reflect this policy in your view? A number of the IRA's credits are much richer if the taxpayer has a project that qualifies for certain credit enhancements. Indeed, in many cases, the only way that a project is going to be economically viable is if you do qualify for these credit enhancements. The credit enhancements are directed towards creating U.S. jobs at a good paying level, particularly in communities that might otherwise suffer from a transition away from fossil fuels. For example, the Section 45 credit for production of electricity from renewable resources includes three potential enhancements. One is prevailing wage and apprenticeships. The second is Buy America. And the third is energy communities. First, taxpayers that meet the prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements will receive a Section 45 credit that is five times the base credit. To qualify for this enhancement, they must pay laborers and mechanics that are engaged in construction, alteration, or repair of the facility the prevailing wage as determined by the Department of Labor. This includes contractors and subcontractors that are working on the project. In addition, taxpayers and their contractors and subcontractors must employ qualified apprentices in their construction, alteration, or repair of the facility. And they meet, must meet certain specified percentages of total labor hours and participation by such apprentices. Taxpayers that claim the enhanced credits but fail to satisfy the prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements are going to be subject to penalties. Second, taxpayers can receive an additional 10% enhancement of their Section 45 credits if their facilities meet certain domestic content requirements for iron, steel, and components. Addie's going to talk about that in a minute. These are the Buy America provisions. Third, taxpayers can earn another 10% enhancement on their 45 credit if the facility is located in an energy community. This includes certain brownfield sites and areas where fossil fuels typically provided a lot of the jobs. As I noted earlier, Treasury and IRS are actively engaged in the process of drafting guidance how each, on how each of these provisions should work. 
and on enforcement. We are assisting clients in the comment process and interfacing with the IRS and Treasury on areas of particular concern for taxpayers. We have assembled a cross-disciplinary team of experts from our labor and employment for prevailing wage and apprenticeship, government contracts for Buy America, and environmental for energy communities aspects of these enhancements. We also are obviously are including the tax group and we're providing comments to Treasury and the IRS and advising clients on these new IRA credits. Great, David, thank you so much. Addy, why don't we turn to you? Can we talk about the Buy America provisions that are imposed by the two pieces of legislation? And why don't we start with the tax credits that David mentioned? With respect to the IRA, can you walk us through the requirements and what challenges you're seeing companies face as they look to maximize these tax credits? Absolutely, Peter. So just to briefly recap the requirements for applicable projects, the IRA provides these enhanced tax credits that David referenced. Um, they're available when the, the steel, iron, or manufactured products, uh, which are a component of the facility being constructed, are produced in the U.S. That's the statutory language, but there's actually separate rules for those different categories of items. So for iron and steel products, Produced means that all the steel and iron manufacturing processes have to take place in the U.S. Uh, for manufactured products, the produced test is satisfied if a certain percentage of the manufactured products that are components of that facility are manufactured in the U.S. Generally, it's a 40% threshold that you have to meet. For offshore wind facilities, it's 20%, a lower threshold. So in terms of challenges, we're still waiting on the IRS guidance implementing these statutory requirements. For now, what we're seeing is that a lot of companies are struggling with how to interpret the statutory language so they can start making the necessary supply chain changes to maximize those tax credits. So just to throw out a couple of examples, some of the questions are, you know, what's going to constitute an iron and steel product that's subject to those more onerous requirements versus a manufactured product where you only have to get to a certain percentage threshold? How do you calculate the cost of components to determine whether you hit the threshold for the manufactured products. Are there going to be waivers for specific products and materials and how will that affect how you do the calculations? I think David mentioned this, the statutory requirements do borrow heavily from long-standing Buy America requirements that have applied over the years to mass transportation infrastructure projects. The statute itself references the Federal Transit Administration's Buy America regulations. So, you know, I think those FTA regulations and the historic guidance that the FTA has issued interpreting those regulations give us at least some insight into how the IRS is going to interpret the rules. But at this point, it's still unclear to what extent the IRS is going to adopt wholesale the FTA approach or only on certain questions, definitions, et cetera. So, Addy, how about on the um, IAJA by America requirements? How and when will those requirements apply? So for those of us that were watching this come about, I don't think any of us were surprised that the IIJA, which is a tremendous investment in U.S. infrastructure, also comes with these strings attached in the form of Buy America requirements for these federally funded state and local infrastructure projects. Um, these requirements became effective really quickly after the act passed in May of 2022, and, and I would describe that as causing a bit of whiplash. Um, what the IIJA does with respect to these infrastructure projects is it exists, it expands existing Buy America requirements. So it broadens the type of infrastructure projects that are subject to these Buy America requirements. It adds a number of administering agencies from those that have historically had Buy America regimes. 
And it also adds to the types of materials that have a domestic manufacturing requirement imposed on them. Similar to the tax credit, domestic content requirements, there are distinct rules for different types of products. So for iron and steel products, all the manufacturing processes from melting through coatings has to occur in the US. For construction materials, all the manufacturing processes have to occur in the US. And then for manufactured products, the products have to be manufactured in the US and the cost of domestically manufactured components has to exceed 55% of the total cost of components. Here, I think one of the big complications is that each agency will administer, uh, that, that's going to administer the federal grant funds is gonna implement these requirements differently through their own regulations or you know, guidance. Some of them won't promulgate regulations, will be more informal guidance. And then each agency is going to issue its own waiver. So in other words, the EPA is interpreting the rules differently than the FTA, and they each have their own waivers that apply to different products, different types of projects, and apply for different time periods. And given that very short timeline between the statute being passed and the effective date of the statutory requirements, in this case, the agencies didn't have time to issue interpretive guidance, and a lot of them haven't done so to date. So it's really hard for companies to figure out whether they are compliant and how they can get in compliance while they're waiting for that the guidance and regulations. In the meantime, we're seeing that companies are already getting requests for certification on new projects. Oftentimes, this is being flowed down with no reference to the funding agency. So companies are having to figure out how to respond to those customers, how to make an accurate certification in the absence of, of clear guidance. So I'll conclude this brief overview by saying, at this moment, I would describe it a bit as the Wild West out there. Great, Addy, thank you very much. Eric, we're gonna pivot to some of the really important um, labor and employment matters that are implicated here. How do the prevailing wage and apprenticeship bear relevance to the IRA? Well, uh, to qualify for the enhanced tax credits under the IRA as referenced by David earlier, the IRA requires that a taxpayer must pay its own workers and require its contractors and their subcontractors to pay their workers prevailing wages for work associated with construction, alteration, or repair of a facility covered under the Act. The IRA further requires that the taxpayer ensure that each taxpayer, contractor, and subcontractor with at least four journey workers staff at least one apprentice. Apprentices must be staffed in accordance with journey person and apprentice ratios required by registered apprenticeship programs and that the apprentices labor hours working on the cover projects must constitute at least 12.5% of the total labor hours on the project for 2023. Then the labor hour requirement increases to 15% after December 31st, 2023. Eric, that's a super helpful overview. So does this mean that Davis-Bacon and its related acts apply to IRA-covered projects? Peter, that's a great question. The act specifically requires wage rates to be paid in accordance with the wage determination issued by the DOL pursuant to Davis-Bacon Act. Recent guidance from the IRS and the DOL also confirms that certain definitions from the Davis-Bacon Act regulations also apply to the IRA. The IRA, however, does not specify beyond the payment of these wage rates the extent to which Davis-Bacon as a whole applies. Given the current lack of clarity on this issue, our opinion is that until further guidance is provided by the DOL or the IRS, 
the closer that a taxpayer, its contractors or subcontractors, track current Davis-Bacon requirements in their wage and hour practices, the less likely they will be deemed to be non-compliant with the requirements under the IRA. But we will be watching this closely. Eric, what about the penalties for non-compliance? Can you talk about that? Yes. In the event of non-compliance with the prevailing wage requirements under the IRA, the IRS, in addition to recoupment of underpaid wages and interest thereon, can issue penalties of $5,000 per laborer and mechanic who was underpaid. If the IRS finds that the underpayment was the result of the taxpayer's intentional disregard of the wage requirement, the IRS can impose enhanced penalties of $10,000 per aggrieved worker, along with three times the amount of the underpaid wages and interest on the underpaid wages. It is unclear whether the penalties are assessed on a strict liability basis. While many have opined that violations can be cured by payment of back wages to the underpaid workers and penalties to the IRS, it is unclear from the statute and the guidance if taxpayer or its contractors or subcontractors need to go so far as to self-report any violations or wage underpayments to the IRS. In terms of violation of the apprenticeship provisions, the IRA imposes a penalty of $50 multiplied by the total number of hours that fall short of the apprenticeship requirements. To the extent that the IRS finds that the failure to meet the apprenticeship provisions is due to intentional disregard of the act, then the penalty amount is elevated to $500 multiplied by the total number of hours that fall short of the requirements. The law provides a good faith exception for meeting apprenticeship requirement to the extent that the taxpayer was unable to staff apprentices due to a denial or lack of response from a certified apprenticeship program within five days of the program's receipt of the request from the taxpayer. The statute and guidance are silent as to the circumstances under which the IRS can seek to claw back tax credits in the event of violation. Eric, you've mentioned guidance. Can you elaborate on the specific guidance that's been issued by the IRS and the Department of Labor? The IRS and the DOL both issued guidance in November of 2022. The DOL also held a webinar to explain the prevailing wages and apprenticeship provisions. The IRS guidance clarified and triggered the start of construction safe harbor period under the IRA. Construction that begins after January 29, 2023 will be required to comply with the prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements in order for a taxpayer to become eligible for the enhanced credits. The DOL and the IRS guidance provides high level discussion on record keeping for examples of covered projects means and methods of obtaining wage determinations from the DOL, basic requirements of prevailing wages, and the ABC's apprenticeship programs. The types of wage determinations that apply to solar and wind projects and other issues. What is not in the guidance is the definition of intentional disregard and whether a taxpayer, its contractors or subcontractors are expected and required to establish their own apprenticeship programs if they are unable to identify a registered program within reasonable commuting distance from the project. So Eric, last question for you. What advice do you currently give to taxpayers, contractors, or other stakeholders 
who will be involved in IRA covered projects? Um, learn and understand these mandates and how they impact their operations and assess and determine whether their existing infrastructure can effectively manage and implement these mandates. Determine the underlying economics. Determine the proper allocation of risks and responsibilities between the taxpayer, contractors, and subcontractors. Develop or modify existing contract provisions and internal policies and practices to address these risks and responsibilities including implementing routine audits and internal dispute resolution protocols. Identify wage determinations and registered apprenticeship programs for the needed trades covering the applicable geographic area where the planned projects are located. Identify the availability of surety bonds or other insurance to cover these risks and responsibilities. Assess consequences of participating in registered apprenticeship programs and the potential of union organizing activity and joint employment liability. Eric, that's very helpful. Thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, no shortage of things to talk about. Now we're gonna pivot to Ellie Dawson, who uh, is one of the leaders of our ESG program. Ellie would really be remiss if we didn't at least touch on one of the most inescapable acronyms in recent memory, ESG, and how that intersects with infrastructure. As 2023 gets underway, how do you see ESG playing out in the infrastructure realm? Thanks, Peter. That's a really interesting question. And the answer can be hard to tease out in podcast form, given how all-encompassing ESG or environmental, social, and governance considerations can seem. But there are a few key points that stand out. First, returning to a point Tyler made earlier, I think the prospect of congressional investigations could create a sense of whiplash for companies that want to take advantage of the clean energy incentives in the IRA, but worry about being hauled before Congress to explain whether their efforts are being unduly influenced by the ESG goals of lenders, investors, or insurers. Indeed, this is the express recommendation of a minority staff report out of the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee in December. An unenviable position, to be sure, and our government affairs group is skilled at helping companies respond when Congress comes calling. Second, the impending finalization of several rules at the federal level requiring climate-related financial disclosures will have far-reaching effects, extending well beyond the directly regulated entities. While almost certain to be litigated, preparation for compliance will need to ramp up quickly, and companies cannot count on reversal, even by a Supreme Court with its current makeup. At a minimum, publicly traded companies and their direct suppliers, and companies that do a significant amount of business with the government, will need to calculate their greenhouse gas emissions and be ready to report them. The pressure to disclose is coming not only from government, but also from other stakeholders, though, so it would be a mistake to think that if the rulemakings don't pan out, disclosure can take a back seat. On the bright side, this is also an opportunity for competitive advantage for those companies that can position themselves as taking the necessary steps to adapt to changing climatic and weather patterns and to increase resiliency in the face of uncertainty. Third, there is a palpable tension in the Biden administration right now between the need to move quickly to meet the administration's ambitious climate-related goals and the promise to address the disproportionately negative effects rapid development can have on traditionally disadvantaged groups, such as racial minorities, tribes, and lower-income communities. This is where the E and the S really come together. 
And it will be very difficult to appease all stakeholders when, for example, it may be necessary to site a wind energy transmission project in a corridor that's also home to an environmental justice community. Thanks, Ellie. So can you talk a little bit more about what's going on in the administration with respect to environmental justice? How might that affect infrastructure projects? So the short answer is how won't it affect infrastructure projects? But seriously, EPA may be the agency most affected by this tension that I mentioned before. EPA's mission has radically expanded since the enactment of the IRA, extending beyond being an agency that primarily regulates via rulemaking to an agency that tries to implement its policy goals by handing out money. And yet the rules and regulations are still there and cannot be ignored. So EPA is having to grapple with encouraging companies to take advantage of these financial incentives while still emphasizing that compliance is not optional. So bringing this back to environmental justice, EPA has been given a lot of money to reduce pollution and advance environmental equity in historically underserved areas. But EPA has also been tasked with updating its guidance with regard to cumulative risk and impact assessments. For example, as part of this effort, EPA has recently issued guidance for considering environmental justice in air permitting actions. This guidance sets out eight different principles for permitting authorities and project proponents to consider, some occurring before the permitting process even begins, including early community engagement and even training for groups to help them provide meaningful input. And it can be difficult to harmonize these efforts with the perceived need to get projects off the ground quickly. Other agencies are similarly trying to weave environmental justice considerations into their implementation of the IRA. For example, DOE is seeking public input on how to implement its grant-making program for electricity transmission funded by the IRA. DOE identified just three topics, and equity, energy, and environmental justice is one of them. As a reminder, one of the Biden administration's first forays into environmental justice was the Justice 40 initiative, which set a goal of having 40% of the overall benefits of certain federal investments flow to disadvantaged communities. So DOE is now asking how it can use this program to further that initiative. So if project developers can pinpoint how their proposals will advance the policy priorities the administration seeks to advance through Justice 40, they should have an advantage. Similarly, the Council on Environmental Quality has just issued guidance interpreting the National Environmental Policy Act and how the GHG emissions of a project should be considered when undertaking environmental analyses. The early read of this guidance is that it's geared toward advancing clean energy projects by requiring the entire life cycle emissions of a project to be put in context, as well as what would happen under a status quo no project scenario, that is, higher emissions. But again, this injects more process and more litigation risk into a project when time is of the essence. As Tyler mentioned, we help clients through all phases of project development to ensure their best position for success. Thanks so much, Ellie, and thanks so much to the rest of the Kroll team for joining, and thanks to you all for listening. Uh, there's a lot to cover, a lot that we'll be watching. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to the Voice of Contract Management, brought to you by Kroll & Mooring exclusively for NCMA. Stay tuned for our next episode as we continue to discuss all things government contracting. In the meantime, explore your learning opportunities at www dot ncmahq dot org slash course catalog.